welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Josh Shepard, Assistant Professor of Media Studies at the Catholic University of America, Sound Fellow at the Library of Congress National Recording Preservation Board, and Humanities and Information Fellow at Penn State. We will discuss his work on the history of radio and the preservation of sound recordings. So welcome to the show, Josh. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, I'm really looking forward to this. Uh, I'm super excited about the work that you're doing and have been following it really avidly. But for listeners who might not be as invested already in the preservation of sound recordings as I am, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what are the National Recording Preservation Board and the Radio Preservation Task Force? Like, why were they formed and what exactly do they do? Yeah, so the National Recording Preservation Board um, is uh, an extension of the Library of Congress Packard Center, uh, which is in Culpeper, Virginia. Uh, and its role is basically to do communications work uh, and outreach work on behalf of the Library of Congress to address uh, different contradictions and problems and uh, policy issues and academic work um, around the generalized uh, recording status of uh, U.S. broadcasting and uh, audio recording. So essentially what the Recording Preservation Board is, is it's a way for the Library of Congress uh, to bring in scholars, uh, different organizations from the Grammy Awards uh, to academic organizations to the Country Music Awards uh, and other groups uh, to put heads together about problems the recording field is facing. Cool. And so what about the Radio Preservation Task Force? Like as operationalizing these projects, what exactly is it and what is it doing? So the task force um, is a mirror to a few projects that we see in our sister group, the National Film Preservation Board, uh, which is still run by the same people. That's Steve Leggett and Carrie O'Dell uh, at the Library of Congress out of the Packard Center. Uh, and the, the task force is based upon uh, a study that was done probably about six or seven years ago called the National Recording Preservation Plan that identified uh, different problems with uh, degrading and decaying materials uh, related to broadcasting as well as standards for digitization, uh, best practices for preservation of endangered materials, uh, of new materials, uh, recommendations for access and curation. Uh, and the task force came out of the plan when they realized that they didn't know where uh, specific radio materials were even held. Uh, so essentially what you have is a lot of cases uh, with audio materials uh, that are music related is you have the warehouses, you have uh, different archives, you have different music groups, and they've cataloged and done uh, at least in the minimum what they call collection level descriptions of what exists. And then from there, you can begin to search where the materials are. And that's uh, important for a lot of reasons. But one of the reasons, of course, is that uh, estates and ownership about the materials can be checked across to where they're held, and then uh, trace that back to uh, who was on the recording and uh, you know where it was copyrighted, and then who um, uh, put the record out or, or whatever. So in the case of radio, they realized that no such centralized system or even regionalized system existed, and they wanted to figure out where the materials were stored in the United States, and uh, they formed a task force to begin to aggregate 
uh, collection level description information. So essentially just collection level is the difference between what is in the general contours of an archive and then item level descriptions would be like the individual recordings. So they, they uh, mandated us to do a collection level description search. Um, and, and what happened was we realized pretty quickly that uh, this had not only never been traced, but um, the materials were highly endangered. So the task force began by searching, and within the first year or so, we had accumulated about 100 professors working on the project. Uh, and then we kept hearing the same story, which is that, uh, okay, the materials were here 10 years ago, 15 years ago, um, but they were on reel-to-reels, or they were on these old giant 16-inch records, which they call program transcriptions, and we trashed them. Or the uh, record, uh, I'm sorry, the, the radio station was sold, uh, under consolidation, and then the commercial station didn't want to keep the records, so they looked for maybe somewhere like an archive to take them. The archives wouldn't take them, so they trashed them, they incinerated them. So what essentially the task force uh, is and became is it's a search for the recordings, uh, and it's also uh, kind of uh, an unwieldy large academic project now by which we're trying to figure out strategies to preserve the materials, study the materials, uh, and turn them into research, and it's become a digital humanities project insofar as that we underwrite a lot of grant work now, too. So a lot of my time is helping different institutions write grants and writing letters for those grants so that we can preserve what we have found. So, I mean, to the extent the materials have been preserved and to the extent that you sort of can really speak to this at this point, like how much of what was originally created still exists? Like sort of what kind of state is it in and what needs to be done in order to preserve that kind of material? Yeah. So uh, there, there's a couple of little stories here uh, that, that uh, answer that question. So the, the first is that uh, it seems like a lot of materials were available um, before the Telecommunications Act of 1996. Uh, so essentially, once that bill was passed and allowed greater consolidation of areas, a bigger corporate ownership moved in and began to uh, take control over uh, different um, uh, sites and the sites uh, in which radio was produced, in which the records were stored. Uh, and over time, you know, this wasn't a very profitable, uh, or at least the royalty structure had not been figured out by the different um, commercial groups that had bought the stations. Uh, but it wasn't very profitable to preserve all those old reel-to-reels uh, because of the processes that it takes to actually do the preservation. So we, I think we lost probably, you know, it's all anecdotal, but we lost um, at least half of what even existed up to 1996, between 96 and 2006 or so. A lot of it was just thrown out uh, based upon uh, the consolidation movement um, in regional radio. Um, so essentially what's left is uh, what a lot of public media, a lot of community media, uh, a lot of commercial media that's locked away, uh, and, and then to some extent like news broadcasts. Uh, if I had to really speculate where we were maybe in like 1990 or like 1985 with radio recordings uh, before the digital kind of took over everything, to where we are now, I would say we've probably lost somewhere between 75% and 99% of United States' radio history. Um, and a lot of it was um, because of the Telecommunications Act, and I think that's pretty crucial, uh, because the ownership uh, or the contours of ownership affect how historical memory gets stored and then recognized, uh, besides that it changed uh, the different ownership rules. So 
essentially uh, what's left um, faces the same kinds of problems with degradation that early film does, which is to say some of them, uh, some of them, some of the recordings are pretty stable. So if it's a record and it's uh, which they call program transcription, so if it's a transcription, those actually are in pretty good shape uh, if it's being held in a dry, um, you know, and decently warm room, and et cetera. But there's certain kinds of uh, tape that were used, especially in the 80s and 70s, that are uh, have a certain caustic glues or uh, have um, this like tendency to sort of stiffen up on itself, which they call sticky shed syndrome. And, and these recordings are highly endangered. Uh, and so essentially what we're looking at here is not only have we lost a huge amount of this history already, but we're also on the verge within the next 10 years or so, according to the great experts, you know, at the Smithsonian and Library of Congress and other places, of losing a lot of the rest of it. <laughs> so what, what we have here is a task force that's uh, trying to figure out how we might incentivize preservation of U.S. history. And we have some historiographical models that we've been working with to try to do that incentivization. Right. Wow. So, I mean, it sounds like a really like a crisis moment. If institutions or individuals are in possession of this kind of material, what can and should they do with it? Are there places where they can deposit it or ways they can provide information about collections that would be helpful? Yes. So we uh, on the first question, is there something we could do with it? This is the great problem. Uh, and one of the historiographical problems that we face is that there's a lot of historians uh, and there's a lot of archives that have not treated sound materials as viable sources of equal quality to paper. And if we come up with a collection, so the one anecdote, and this made, uh, I think, like national or international news like three or four years ago, there was a warehouse in Detroit uh, full of radio materials. And it was uh, a radio station that had chronicled the rise of Motown. And so it had all of these like live radio broadcasts uh, with live performances of Motown artists in Detroit in the 60s. And they were going to tear down the entire building and then just trash whatever was in it with the teardown of the building. Um, and uh, we, had, we uh, one of our members of our task force wrote a piece on it, Derek Valiant at University of Michigan. Uh, it got a little bit of press coverage. Uh, the academic community was aware of it. And we could not find one archive in the United States to take those recordings. Uh, and, and so the question is why? And there's a few very legitimate reasons. So the first reason is that when you uh, um, make, create an accession at a library, so when there's a donation or a deposit of materials, uh, what this does is it actually reorganizes the time of the archivists and librarians. So it's not just that you gave materials to a library, but that someone's job has literally changed upon the reception of those materials. And then the, the next problem is that different reel-to-reels, you know, for example, are an obsolete media. And so they have to have the right equipment to even listen to the materials, let alone uh, find strategies to uh, turn them into digital files or something like that. So we have an equipment problem. And then beyond that even, uh, you know, the, the notion that radio itself is kind of like low culture material um, has really prevented a lot of universities from taking seriously that radio is a big part of our cultural heritage. Uh, and so we, we have these like multi-front Difficulty is getting materials placed, and we've literally been trying to figure this out for five years. And all we keep doing is writing sort of recommendations and reports <laughs> on it, uh, but it hasn't really persuaded too many people yet. However, um, the last two or three years, we've actually had a really great track record of getting grant money sent through radio collections. So if a university has activated itself to take seriously 
uh, sound history, then they tend to be pretty successful finding grants within one to three years. So it takes usually one or two times a reapplication until you know uh, one of the granting agencies takes it totally seriously. But most of the things that I've signed off on have eventually gotten grants, which is the good news because of the good work of the libraries who have taken this seriously. What can people who are in possession of this material, whether it's an institution or an individual, what can they do with it to sort of facilitate its preservation and find it a home? So, okay, right. So, yeah, the answer is we actually don't know yet. <laughs> That's the unfortunate answer after five years of thousands of hours of work is one, we have a lot of ideas, like there should be a central repository that receives these information, these different tapes, and, and then uh, digitizes the information. Um, the Library of Congress is kind of out of space. And then there's an additional factor, which is that let's say something uh, is historically important and gets donated, uh, it has to then be listened to. And if someone has the equipment, it's not always clear what's on the tapes. Sometimes like a big reel-to-reel just has like a date on it. And so if it only has the data on it, it has to be um, processed. Uh, they have to create metadata for the actual object that they're listening to. And this requires time, but it also requires the equipment and it requires the attention and the interest and all that kind of stuff. So part of getting something donated means that it can be processed a lot of the time. And we have problems with that because of the equipment deficiencies. So what I would say is hold on to the materials <laughs> while we're working on the issue because uh, there are a lot of people. So we have like 200 plus professors on the project now, about 50 archivists. And we're, you know, the world moves very slowly in this kind of work. Um, and every year we make a push to try to get something really resolute done. And every year we make, we maybe we push for a foot, and we get an inch, you know. So it is something that if you have these old radio materials, uh, it's crucial that you hold on to them until we can kind of figure out uh, the logistics and the economy of scale by which uh, things can be preserved. Because even the preservation itself, if we get to that point, is extremely expensive. It's like $100 per recording minimum, depending on the quality of the recording uh, in terms of how well-preserved it is. Mm. So first, don't throw it out. And second, is there anything that institutions or individuals can do to sort of maximize the lifespan and minimize the likelihood of degradation of materials? Yeah. So, you know, um, you don't leave it in humidity, uh, you know, keep it somewhere as dry as possible, as stable as temperature as possible, not too warm, not too cold. Uh, cold's a little better than warm. Um, talk to your local university if you think you got something that's important. Uh, and I'd love to talk a little bit about the historiography of how we think about why it's important too. Mm. Um, and, and so, and I would say that, um, and if it's, really important to you and you think it's really important for like your local regional or national culture uh, i would we try to find ways to band together projects uh, and then apply for grants with things that are banded together and so you can only get so much money out of a grant so it usually is only then a selection of what is even on hand that gets preserved but uh, i look for partnerships so i would if i was a uh, radio station listening to this or uh, you know, uh, an, an archivist, I would definitely contact your local university, especially if the radio materials have um, uh, local history on it, uh, which is part of the historical, historiographical argument we're developing. Mm -hmm. Well, so about the historiography, I mean, I wonder if you could reflect a little bit on why it's important 
specifically to preserve radio history. I mean, what can radio history tell us about America and American culture that other archival sources maybe don't? Yeah. So radio history is, uh, it's an interesting history because I think people envision Jack Benny, you know, and stuff like that, which is great. Variety shows, entertainment, the shadow, um, or I'm, I'm a bad site, Amos and Andy, uh, and these are important historical markers of fiction and theatrical performance. But most of radio history is actually non-theatrical. Uh, so essentially it's call-in shows. Um, it's like community organizing broadcasts. It's public affairs programming. And essentially what you have on radio recordings, we have found, and I, I, we kind of always knew this, but we didn't realize just how emphasized it was until we started the project. Uh, essentially what you have on a radio recording is a sound trail of especially local history in these interviews and calling shows uh, that's political and cultural and picks up where paper trails leave off. So essentially what you have is different histories of different experiences that you can't always find in paper trails. So civil rights broadcasts, uh, different activisms. Uh, and one of the beauties of like, for instance, community radio uh, for uh, historians and for activists is that there's no middleman. There's no one interpreting or editing or censoring what someone is saying on the air. Someone is from 1972 in the feminist movement at Pacifica. Uh, they have this giant feminist history uh, of recordings. Uh, just gets on the air and is doing community organizing work by radio. And that, for us, is an extremely valuable uh Repository. So orientation history, uh, race and rights history, uh, gender history, a lot of the things the Academy really values in research uh, and, and did not as much as it should for a long time and is now really emphasizing as it should. Uh, radio turns out to be one of the great primary source repositories, period. And in fact, is definitely the most unexplored political and cultural history repository in the U.S. Uh, so even with all of the losses we have in radio, uh, there's probably still something like five to 800,000 hours of history that could be preserved immediately and go into use um, uh, for research and for just public consumption. Yeah, I mean, I got to say, like, I've come across occasional LPs of radio broadcasts from the 50s, 60s, 70s on some of these subjects and been really surprised by the sort of alternative perspectives and the way those perspectives were being expressed. And it really does seem like there is this kind of like deep kind of ulterior sort of perspective, like, like alternative perspective to to American culture that's preserved in the radio in a way that it really wasn't preserved in other media, especially when it comes to like community radio and activist radio and, and all these kind of media. Yeah. We try to work closely with different uh, groups like Pacifica or we've worked with NPR or we'll work, you know, with uh, different uh, archives that have these types of histories. And you begin to realize that, okay, let's get our friends who are, professors who work in these areas, let's help them curate which materials might be preserved and go immediately into research. Uh, and it's just like a wealth of political and cultural history that we keep saying that we want, <laughs> but 
have to take steps to actually um, make available. You know, so there's a political economy essentially that I think law listeners will appreciate to this process because it's not just okay, we found a recording, now it's available. Uh, it has to go through all kinds of different logistical maneuvers and uh, answer to a state law uh, and then be made publicly available or not. Uh, and, and that depends on a lot of factors. Um, and, and it really is uh, uh, centered on alterity history, especially with the non-theatrical recordings in ways that uh, are also accounted for in paper, but not necessarily as holistically as we sometimes wish that it was. So another, I'm just making a case here that we should be taking very seriously that sound history is cultural history. Well, so I'm a copyright professor, so I would be remiss if I didn't at least ask you one copyright question. And so I, I got to know, like sort of copyright so frequently creates difficulties, transactions, costs in so many contexts. You know, to what extent does copyright law make the preservation and uh, provision of access to this material more difficult? Yeah. So um, there's a lot of answers to this. The, the first answer is that for something to be made publicly available, you know, they have to have either estate permissions or, or some kind of like clever cocktail by which litigation is reduced to a minimum uh, in the making available. So I point to a couple projects. So like the American Archives of Public Broadcasting out of the WGBH and the Library of Congress. Um, uh, there, some, some of um, like archive.org, they, they've begun to take on the difficult gray territory by which making available potentially is not just uh, something, if it's nonprofit, that siphons away profits, but that might account for profits lost, which is still grounds for litigation, which gets a lot of uh, cease and desist possible letters. So essentially, if there's a recording and there's eight voices on that recording, hypothetically, all eight voices have to get permission to make it publicly available. Um, now, in the case of uh, certain recordings, uh, they, like so public media, often there is a waiver that's signed that it can be made for public consumption. In the case of certain commercial media, um, they might have signed over rights depending on the broadcast by which it is then under the domain of the broadcaster that broadcasted it in the first place. And then uh, in the case of community media, it's sometimes there's nothing at all happening except for the voices on the radio. Nothing happened legally at all. So it, it doesn't mean that there actually, it would lead to lawsuits, but it does mean that there is this like question over who owns it, and if it's made available, did someone lose something in that process, and should they be made whole? So uh, the Music Modernization Act um, has uh, made one definite, in, uh, definite important uh, provision, which is that it allows for this 90-day reporting of, uh, the, of, that you can file by which it's going to be used for nonprofit purposes, which would reduce uh, the probability of, of any type of litigation for orphan works. And so in the case of Orphan Works, we have this huge problem by which it's not always clear who's on the recording, who owns the recording, uh, what we should do with it. It often is like one off recording of a different political history or like an interview or something like that. Uh, and we're not always sure how to approach it. And what essentially has happened is historically they just haven't been preserved. So it's like, okay, we don't know what to do with this orphan work. Uh, so an orphan work being uh, just simply that we don't, we can't track down, you know, the legal uh, estates by which uh, to contact. So uh, 
essentially the orphan works have sat there in a lot of cases for a lot of years and just decaying. And uh, now it seems to be moving a little bit more towards uh, that we should be able to at least preserve materials uh, and make them available within, you know, fair use and, and within and, and just put them down for safe harbor. Well, so shifting gears a little bit, Josh, I understand that you're working on a larger project about the history of public broadcasting. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that project, sort of how it came to happen and what your goals for it are. Yeah. Well, my day job is that I'm a, a media historian uh, besides working on this project. And yeah, at some point we realized uh, amongst media historians that no one had written a history of public broadcasting in the United States, if you can believe it. So, and I think there's a few reasons for this. Uh, one is that uh, it, it is a history that began at universities and that it was spread out across uh, multiple different locations that then coalesced into a national institution over about 40 years. So it required me going to three dozen collections over about seven years or so and, and obtaining grants for that to be able to uh, dig into that research. Uh, and, and also, you know, we have a very commercial focused culture here. So essentially the default public sphere in American culture is for profit, um, you know, and logics of accumulation culture. Uh, and, and I feel like film and media studies, uh, which has chronicled so many minutia film, for example, uh, it, never, it never occurred to film and media studies that we should do a granular analysis of our non-commercial system as well. So I began with those sort of assumptions and those problems at hand. And what I discovered was that uh, there's a very famous book uh, by Robert McChesney at the University of Illinois. And he points to how commercial broadcasting became the standardized model through the Communications Act of 1934. And his book is, is uh, an important book and it essentially traces the 1920s till, till 34, and then it kind of ends. Uh, and it, it ends on this note that this was like this great paradise lost of <laughs> possible non-commercial media history um, by which we might've had a BBC or something like that. And that became the dominant narrative too, of uh, film and media studies is that we had this private system and that uh, it could have been different. Uh, but what I found in the archives with respect to his book uh, was within one year, uh, of the Communications Act by 1935, the same people who he discusses in his book went about building uh, non-commercial media infrastructures. <laughs> so uh, essentially uh, before 34, there's this strong activism uh, to, to set aside frequencies for non-competitive use. Uh, and, and what happens is once the Communications Act defines the American system, which was uh, loosely in terms of what they called public interest instead of public service, uh, a lot of the stations uh, that were nonprofit could not compete with uh, the criteria for public interest, which meant like maintenance of facilities, a 12-hour broadcast day in a lot of cases, uh, you know, paying the labor. Uh, and a lot of them literally disappeared within six months after 34, and that's where the famous book ends. But by 35, the activism begins to transform into like more of what I call an advocacy, which is that based upon the rules uh, facilities maintenance that you find in the Communications Act, universities uh, who are more interested in creating equal access to education through media uh, begin to try to build educational infrastructure by which uh, different curriculum could be accessed through radio, regardless of where one's station was economically, 
and regardless of where one lived. So if one was in a, like a rural or agrarian community in the Midwest in the 1940s, it was still pretty hard to access the same level of education uh, that you can now. And, and there's still discrepancies, of course. And so the, the ambition there was to rectify that uh, through the creation of genres that we now have on public media. It was your home economics became cooking shows, um, you get travel shows, you learn about languages through travel shows in the earlier days on the radio. Uh, you have uh, Head Start programming like Sesame Street and early days of children's programming and learn, learning how to count by radio and all that kind of stuff. So what, what happens is after about 35 to 67, which is the Public Broadcasting Act, all of these different institutions start to get involved in the advocacy. Uh, you get philanthropic groups like the Rockefeller Foundation and Ford Foundations, which which is why public media in the U.S. is always um, still philanthropically funded. That was the precedent. Uh, you get the Office of Education and actually the FCC itself, which did not necessarily want to take away those licenses in 35, uh, working with uh, a kind of a grassroots broadcasting movement to create an infrastructure by which access to educational programming was widely available, and by uh, 1950 or so, they created what they called the Bicycle Network, which was the prototype for PBS and NPR. It was essentially the best program produced by a university station would be bicycled around the country to different stations so that everyone had equally good programming. And it became what they called back then like a fourth network. So the three networks were ABC, CBS, and NBC. And then the fourth network was the educational university broadcasts that begin to emerge around that time. Well, so you sent me a draft chapter from your book, which I thought was fantastic. And it told like a really fascinating story about essentially the FCC and the Department of Education bringing like Frankfurt School theorist Theodore Adorno to come advise them about what American radio should look like. I mean, I wonder, in a, could you like just touch on that for a moment because I love the story and I thought it was really telling and just a fascinating moment in American history that seems to say a lot about that period. Yeah, it, it was a total accident that I discovered these personal letters between uh, Theodore Adorno and Paul Lazarsfeld, who's often crediting with being the founder of communication studies and different models of quantitative sociology um, and, and advertising research in the U.S. So essentially, uh, after the Communications Act and the decimation of educational stations, uh, two things happened. The first is that commercial stations were tasked with taking up the slack for educational stations by the FCC, uh, and they called that sustaining broadcasting instead of public service broadcasting. And the commercial stations did not find that profitable and didn't want to do it. They just wanted certain frequencies for themselves that were easiest to access. So they were actually interested in an alternative being formed that didn't necessarily compete with them but could be supported. Uh, the other thing that happened was that, uh, a lot of those who were invested in broadcasting per se realized that uh, they weren't sure how effective educational broadcasts actually were in the classroom. They didn't have evidence that said that this is effective for these reasons. So uh, there's a pursuant that's written um, by the FCC to the Communications Act that then kind of mandates a path by which educational stations could reclaim some frequencies. And one of the uh, stipulations of the pursuant is that 
there has to be a better understanding of the aesthetics of radio for educators. Like they have to actually reach the audiences and have an impact on the audiences. So they, the FCC, the Office of Education, uh, the Rockefeller Foundation, and then a bunch of educational interests and the commercial broadcasters formed something called the Federal Radio Education Committee or FREC. And FREC uh, was fascinating because uh, it was something that broke down the public-private binary that we usually assume with American media history. Uh, there's a lot of this sort of public versus private, private versus public, but they were working pretty closely together on answering questions about best practices. And one of the questions of best practices turned out to be um, developing a, a technique or methodology to understand audiences. And this is the first audience research we ever see in media history that uh, is as dynamic as it is. And I'll try to say a couple words about that. So essentially, they, uh, a guy named Hadley Cantrell at Princeton hired Paul Lazarsfeld, his wife Herta Herzog, uh, who deserves a lot more attention because she helped to invent advertising research for the world, basically the methodologies beginning with this project, and a guy named Frank Stanton. And Frank Stanton was a researcher at CBS who was allocated by CBS for this project for a period of time. He goes on to become president of CBS. He was a very famous broadcasting figure, um, but he's very young in this scenario. And what they do is they begin to refine demographic research. So there were certain models of media effects and demographic research going back to the late teens into the 20s. Uh, but a lot of times those models asked questions like, which, so they give you a bunch of categories and say, okay, which category are you in? But it was not a comprehensive set of categories for affiliation. And so what the Princeton Radio Research Project did, uh, um, underwritten by these different groups, was it said, well, hold on a minute, which category would you yourself say you're in uh, and then what happened was the categories just sort of exploded. There was all of these dynamic categories that could be ascribed to a listener at any given time. And what that did was that it um, made it possible for one listener in New Jersey, for example, to actually match up to a listener in North Dakota. And if they were presented with the same content, they would elicit similar responses based upon the deep refinement of demographic affiliation that was self-identified. So this, this was like the major breakthrough in like modern sociological research, which is to say we need more categories and we can get it so granular that um, we can begin to see patterns, as Weber says, like in the cosmos, uh, in the cosmos of human engagement, uh, by which uh, you have networks that are not simply localized. The networks are actually affiliative. So, okay, so what happens is, at the same time, Lazarsfeld, who is a very brilliant guy, begins to realize that the kind of research they're doing, which they called administrative research, was not comprehensive enough to account for anything beyond the question asked about the content. So they figured out demography, but they couldn't figure out the use of the results beyond the moment in which it was posited. So, uh, so they, so they <laughs> for some reason, <laughs> they went to... The Frankfurt School, there's actually a few reasons, but I'll skip those reasons. And they said, we need someone to help us with policy language to explain this breakthrough to FREC uh, and, you know, the FCC. And we also need someone to help us understand, um, like, the social implications of this new type of quantitative research. They're essentially taking something quite holistic, which is being itself, and turning it into fragments and categories. And so they wanted... Uh, someone to help them think through the social context of uh, quantitative research. And that's why Adorno came to America. 
uh, and so no one has ever written about this, and I discovered it on accident. But everyone knows he came to America. They say it's because he was a genius, which is probably true. Uh, but it was actually to work on public broadcasting. <laughs> and, it was, you know? <laughs> and so you have this great civic history where Adorno comes to America to work on this great civic project of quantitative research. And so the famous story goes, the apocryphal story, which is, which is actually triangulated by findings in the archives, uh, that you know, immediately he clashed with the people because they were doing math about people. And he thought we needed something much more phenomenological, uh, something that was a little bit more Marxian. We, so essentially what he, what he thought we needed was something that never fragmented humans from their experience and from the holistic reception, uh, not only of content, but its place within a, a broader uh, social uh, embeddedness. And, uh, and it just like blew their minds. Like they were like, what is this guy talking about? We figured out some math and it's helping us understand, um, you know, how people are responding to content. And most importantly, this is gonna give us like better frequencies for educational broadcasting so we can have better access to education in this country. And Adorno's like, no, um, you're ruining democracy because it's fragmenting everyone from their actual, their actual embodiment, you know? And so they fire him. <laughs> they fire him like a year later. So he barely makes it like a year, but it gets him to America, which was very important in the buildup to World War II, as we know, because he was Jewish. And, um, but what's interesting about the story is that for a moment, my communication studies, uh, and Adorno doesn't really get famous in America until the 60s, you know, uh, with the culture industries articles and these types of things, which were brewing as early as the 30s. But for a moment, communication studies almost had critical theory as one of its primary methodologies, because communication studies as departments doesn't even emerge until uh, 47, 48 in the country. So it's one of the last academic departments uh, in the humanities that, and social sciences now that forms. You know, a lot of the other ones are very ancient. And... Uh, it, but instead, what happened was they ended up going the route of political economy, which was more empirical in nature. The empirical structure of political economic research matched the empirical structure of broadcasting production and quantitative, you know, demography of audiences. So, so that's the Adorno discovery was that I think no one actually really quite understood where Adorno came from, like why. And then you realize that like public broadcasting history fomented these great intellectual traditions. So you have like public broadcasting history. It's not something we've studied enough. And it turns out to be the reason we have communication studies in the US and the reason Adorno comes to America. Um, and it, later in the process, uh, we won't have to talk about this, but it's also the reason that Marshall McLuhan did a lot of his work in the late 50s and then became famous in the 60s. So the concept, that my, my closing concept about this is that the concept of social ameliorative work, the concept that there should be a nonprofit use of media to improve democracy is a great engendering and fomenting part of American cultural history. And the more and more we think we have to profit off of things, the more it does fragment us from these holistic democratic questions. And I think that both the quantitative and qualitative researchers were right about that. So once we're attuned to how do we improve democracy through media, all of these great ideas come out of it. And that's one of the takeaways for this kind of research. Awesome. Well, I'm super excited about the book and I can't wait to read it. And we'll have to do another interview when, when it comes out. Um, I was wondering, Josh, if in closing, 
you could maybe offer some thoughts for uh for scholars who aren't necessarily already embedded in in sound recording history as to how they can use sort of archival radio in their own research and also use it pedagogically for their students. Yeah. So one of the problems, of course, with sound recordings is that we are very uh, uh, writing-based, including me. So, um, you know, there's these new technologies that are beginning to transition sound recordings into paper trails. So the preservation of sound is actually becoming a paper archive as well. Um, What I would say is uh, sometimes you just got to sit down and and listen for a few hours and take notes, uh, just like a lecture. And this type of work is much slower, uh, sound, you know, historical work. And it is also something in which you listen to the timbre of the voice. Uh, you listen to the pauses in how people talk. You listen to the dynamic between people, which are things you can't pick up always from writing, although you can sometimes. Uh, and sound research, uh, does have these dimensions that are quite affective. They're not just informational, but it does take some interpretation about human dynamics and human histories that come across. You listen to people's dialects. Um, And so if one is studying something like activism, uh, you you can go to the Library of Congress, you can go to a lot of great um, universities doing this preservation work. The University of Minnesota just got a great preservation grant. Indiana University, University of California, Santa Barbara, uh, uh, Hagley, uh, which is at Syracuse. I'm sorry, Hagley is at the University of um, Delaware. And then Belfer, uh, Belfer Archive at uh, Syracuse University. There's these great repositories of sound history, and you set some time aside and you uh, just have to move a little slower than paper trails. But the payoff. I think um, has more ethnographic um, dimensions than some parts of writing history. And uh, so it's definitely worth doing. It's not a replacement, it's a compliment. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, I hope we've made a little contribution to sound history today. And I really appreciate you coming on the program, Josh. It's been a lot of fun talking to you about your incredible work. Thank you for having me. The driver said that if I refused to leave the seat, he would have to call the police, and I told him, just call the police, which he did, and when they they came, they placed me under arrest. Wasn't that a pretty frightening thing to be arrested in Montgomery, Alabama? No, I wasn't frightened at all. You weren't frightened? Why weren't you frightened? I don't know why I wasn't, but I didn't feel afraid I I had decided that I would have to know once and for all what rights I had as a human being and a citizen even in Montgomery, Alabama. 